This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. So last year, I was at a conference in Las Vegas about AI. Um, the guys who were featured on The Social Dilemma came in to give two sides to the story about what is misunderstood about AI. And there was a guy there, his name's Tristan Harris. He now is the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. And he was explaining in the film of um, The Social Dilemma about how social media manipulates people their views, their emotions, their behaviors, and how it is absolutely addicting. Um, he went on to really talk about the dangers of AI in the future and how we need to be aware. He was asking for people to you know, get on board and donate. And at the end of the conference, um, this was a very wealthy crowd, somebody got up and donated a million dollar check um, to his center for you know the understanding of AI. So I found that like very eye-opening that there were people that were very scared of what's going on in the future. On the other hand, there was a guy that got up. I talk about this in the episode, so I'm not going to get too much into it, but he talked about some fascinating things in terms of language and breaking the codes with um, between humans and animals, being able to understand other languages and why AI is such a positive thing. So, you know, for a while I've wanted to do an episode on this. I think it's um, very misunderstood. You know, it was brought to my attention using chat GPT in my daughter's school. Um, some people love it. Some people think it's dangerous and our kids aren't going to learn. So I think there was a lot to get into, but um, you know, I've been wanting to get someone on the show to talk about artificial intelligence for a while. And I couldn't figure out the right angle. I couldn't figure out the right person. And then I read an article that featured today's guest, Taryn Southern, and knew she was the perfect person. So Taryn started her career in entertainment, first as a singer, then as a TV host and a personality, things that have really nothing to do with AI. But she got her first taste of the positive side of AI all the way back in 2018 when she created the very first solo pop album composed using AI. I didn't even know that existed. She later transitioned to a behind-the-camera role, directing and producing her own documentary called I Am Human which chronicled the journey of three pioneers with implantable brain-computer interfaces, better known as BCIs. On the speaker circuit, Taryn talks on everything from BCIs, human and AI collaboration, to storytelling with emerging technologies. She helps break down where AI is now and where it's going. You'll be amazed to hear about the medical marvels um, around the corner and how technology is way closer than we think to us having airplanes that actually fly themselves. We also discuss where AI can go wrong and how we can get ahead of it before it gets ahead of us. Our conversation with Taryn was totally eye-opening. And one thing is for sure, AI isn't going away. So we need to learn everything we can about it. This episode is the perfect place to start. So welcome my guest, Taryn Souther. Taryn, thank you so much for joining me on Misunderstood today. It's great to be here. Thank you. So for full disclosure, I wanted to, you know, let you know and let the listeners know that I, you know, discovered you when I read a Vanity Fair article recently about somebody that you used to date, um, a guy named Brian Johnson, who was somebody that I had been following because I wanted to have him on the show. He's been spending $2 million a year on this quest for immortality and, um, you know, to reverse aging, which I found kind of fascinating. But then as the story went on, 
there was some other details that went along with it that had some controversy that involved you. And as someone who's um, basically been through something similar um, and reading um, about what happened, but also reading about you, I felt like it was really important for me to show people who you are because your resume and doing going down the rabbit hole of you is so impressive that, you know, I don't want people to not understand who you were, quite oh, frankly. So that's why it was really important for me to sort of end that mission about understanding what he's doing and really hear what you're doing because it's so fascinating. And so I just wanted to let you know that I wanted to let viewers know that because if people know your name for anything else than who you are and, and what you've done in the past and what you're doing now, then people will be very, you know, remiss in, in, in knowing what you have to offer. So I thought that was really Thank important you. to say. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, so, okay. So you have done so much in your life and before I even get into what you're doing now, which obviously is fascinating on so many levels, I want to talk about, you know, where you started off your career and your childhood kind of, because you have always been a storyteller. You've always been someone that's been very creative. So can you start off with like telling me what you were like as a kid and kind of how you got into putting yourself on the screen and in people's minds as someone who was kind of an actress and a musician and all these things that made you who you are. Oh, thank you. Well, I, where did you grow up by the way, Rachel? I grew up in, um, well, I was born in Anchorage, Alaska and I lived there till I was five. And then and I moved to New York city with my mother. Oh, that's a big shift. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Huge. Well, <laughs> I did not grow up in Alaska, but I grew up in the second most remote place in the United States, Wichita, Kansas. Yes. Right. <laughs> growing up in Wichita, Kansas, um, there wasn't a whole lot to do. I remember distinctly the moment that my parents got internet as a kid and thinking, right. I mean, my mind was blown. It was like this window to the outside world opened up and you know, unbeknownst to my parents, I spent a lot of time in AOL chat rooms and couldn't believe that I was talking to someone in Australia and I could hear about what life in other places was like. And so um, I think growing up, you know, most of my efforts in theater, in journalism, in whatever it was that I was interested in doing was really um, sort of my my desire to to see more of the world and also like what was going to be my ticket out of Kansas. Not that Kansas isn't a great place to live and it was a wonderful place to grow up, but I always knew that I wanted to, to get out and see the world. So for me, I think theater and music theater were the first, were the first areas that I kind of locked into as maybe this is my ticket out. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, so talk to us though, about how you got into this um, world of, you know, doing interviews and, and all this stuff. Was that after you started doing your own YouTube videos? Like, how did you get into all that? Actually, you weren't, you weren't trained as a journalist or anything, right? Well, I studied journalism in college. So mm -hmm. I did American Idol when I was 17 years old. Right. And it was, um, it was a harrowing experience <laughs> that was really career defining for me because I, um, I ended up forgetting my lyrics on, you know, in the semifinals to one oh of my, my God, I just stood there like a deer in headlights with music playing in the background. I end up crying. Ryan Seacrest is consoling me on the show. I'm 17. So, I mean, you, it, you can't imagine a bigger dream bursting. And I went back to college. Uh, it was my freshman year of college with my tail between my legs and decided to never get up on stage and perform again and studied journalism and decided I wanted to go into investigative journalism. That's what I really wanted to do. And I would spend my free time in Miami going to junkets and interviewing people like The Rock, you know, or whoever I could find that was coming down to Miami for my for my reel. So once I got out of college, I had a reel. And, and that, that was actually the first thing I started doing was television hosting or digital media hosting, because at the time, no one wanted to do digital media. It was It was the bastard child of of, of the projects. Yeah. Wait, so I'm so curious about that. Were you creating your reel by yourself? Like, obviously you weren't working for a network. How were you jumping in front of someone like The Rock to get him to talk to you? University of Miami Television. It was not an impressive outlet, but because Miami was such a small town, any of the junkets, we, we tended to get in there. So Wow. That's so, yeah, so I had a reel. And then by the time I, I graduated college early and I came to Los Angeles and immediately started working um, as a host, mostly for isn't, red carpets. Isn't it amazing that back in the day, it was 
imperative that you had a reel. You had to show people your, you know, your worth and what you've done. And nowadays it's just somebody can get on the internet and make up stuff and become an influencer. And they literally don't even have to leave your bedroom. But it's funny because I've heard you talk about, you know, the importance of attention. It's just about getting attention. And, um, you know, I guess none of that has changed over time, but you know, it's, it's what we had to do to get the credibility. That's, that seems to have changed over all these years. That's right. I mean, I suppose in a weird way, there's, it, it's, it's all posturing, but it's just done differently. Right. I mean, I was, yeah. I was a kid with very little experience showing up to these junkets, pretending like I'm some professional host. Yeah. And that's how you end up actually cutting your teeth. Yeah. Right. <laughs> This episode is proudly brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the one and only Jennifer Aniston. She's been hair goals for as long as I can remember. I'm proud to say I get a lot of comments on my hair on social media as well. I feel like it's something I'm known for. And there are so many hair products on the market that can be confusing to other people if you haven't tried it yourself. But I found one that really works and finding something that's actually good for you is very hard. So that's where Lola V comes in. I put my hair through the ringer. I'm sure you do too. Coloring, styling, extensions that I get. I'm always changing it up. So it's crucial to have products that repair and shield my hair from future harm. If you want to get started, Lola V's bestsellers are the cult classic glossing detangler and perfecting leave-in conditioner. They will be your saviors. They aren't just styling products. They're your hair's new best friends. And what kind of best friend would they be if they didn't give us a little treat? So for a limited time, you can get an exclusive 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use code understood at checkout. So I got these products uh, maybe a week ago and I've been using them obviously every day. I absolutely love them. I've already reordered stock for myself and I've ordered it. Some friends that I knew had some things coming up that I just wanted to send them a little gift. Um, I can't tell you how much it has changed my hair already in a week. It looks and feels so much better. There's a tangible difference. The restorative shampoo conditioner and intensive repair treatment makes every shower feel like you are at a spa. It's so luxurious, it, but it doesn't stop there. The post shower products will change your whole styling routine. I didn't really know about these things. I mean, I've seen different products before. I've always been nervous about my hair getting greasy, but the glossing detangler, the perfecting leave-in and the lightweight hair oil are an amazing trifecta of goodness. So unlock Jennifer Aniston's approved hair at lolavie.com. As our loyal listeners, you will get an exclusive 15% off your entire order when you use code understood at checkout. That's 15% off your entire order at L-O-L-A-V-I-E.com with promo code understood. Please note, you can only use one promo code per order and discounts cannot be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them that we sent you. Exactly. Well, the reel was good. I mean, I've seen it and it looked very professional. So, um, some point in there, you get heavily involved into YouTube and creating content specifically. How did you come up with your content? How did you, how were you able to stand out? The first, well, so I was, um, I was actually producing a show for DirecTV at the time. And it was a show where I was traveling the world with two other girls meeting our MySpace friends. So it was kind of considered one of the early, um, digital integrated shows. And so I was very um, interested in what was happening online. And I don't know, I, I think it was Lonely Girl 15, Jessica Rose, who later became a, a good friend of mine, but she um, she had become this overnight sensation on YouTube. These videos of her, she was an actress and people thought that the that storyline they were watching was real and it wasn't. Um, and I found that really intriguing. And I remember just kind of watching and sitting back and thinking, wow, that's amazing. I can, I can barely get, I really at the time wanted to act and I couldn't get auditions to act because mm -hmm. I, you had to have a separate agent, you know how it goes. Right. And so I thought, well, maybe I can start figure, you know, putting out videos on YouTube and a YouTube video made by Obama girl in 2007 or 2008 for the primaries um, went viral. I had millions of views on it. And I thought, huh, I want to spoof it. I'm going to do the Hillary Clinton version. I'm mm -hmm. going to do the, I have a crush on Hillary video. So I did and it went viral and it got me, um, it got me a, a short-term job offer from, I think it was Fox news at the time. 
But I ended up going to MSNBC and CNN and and being like a political correspondent sort of Mm -hmm. through that video, which was so wild. So I was like, okay, this is a very powerful medium. This is a very powerful medium because I don't know anything about politics and I do not deserve to be on these shows. But if this is what what this medium can do for you, then maybe I should continue. Right. So at what point did AI come into your you know, your, your mindset, your world, how did you find out about it? How was it something that um, got you interested? I know one of the first things you did was um, involving music, right? Is that how it first started for you? Yeah. So I, I basically, after, um, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years on YouTube. And for a while I was just sort of doing it in my free time when I wasn't working in TV and film. And then I began taking it more seriously because there was actually, you could actually really make money on it. Um, and that's when I started getting back into my to music and pursuing my love of music after the the horrific American Idol incident years earlier. And um, I found myself uh, I found myself just playing with different tools as often YouTubers do because they're trying to figure out how can I make a video quickly. I have to put out something every week. And on the music side, I'm not a great composer. And so when I heard about these new AI tools that would allow you to compose music, I I was intrigued immediately. So I started playing with them and I was, my, this was in 2016 um, and my mind was blown. But what's the difference between what you're talking about and like what I remember like a Casio being, remember those like synthesizers and you can press like bongos or I don't know, you can add all those sorts of things. And is it similar? Uh, You know, it's different, but I also am not a specialist in the in the way of making music with Casios. But I think <laughs> those are those are more like looping machines where you've got sort of a consistent beat and you're looping. Whereas um, with any sort of artificial intelligence, uh, you know, every output is unique to parameters that you are providing it, and so you're essentially directing the music. Um, but instead of you know being an orchestra conductor or uh, someone who's actually writing out the music notes, you are you are verbally um, providing instruction. So I want a cinematic uh, ballad in the style of Mozart at 78 beats per minute in the key of C, uh, those kinds of instructions. And then there's a constant back and forth. So for my first album, I mean, I think for a lot of those songs, there were 80, 90 iterations going back and forth before getting to a a version of the song that I was happy with. So it's really a collaborative process. It's not like where you're saying to this machine, do the writing, do the music, do everything, and I'll just sing it. You were going back and forth. Yes. Highly, highly involved. Um, It's, it's, you're taking on the role of an editor. Mm. Really what you're doing. Like if you've ever edited a YouTube video or, um, or a film or something to that, and you know how different the final output can be based on the choices that you make. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're doing here is working with AI. So you ended up having a couple albums and, you know, you were on the news for it. You made, you know, headlines for the fact that you were the first artist that collaborated with AI, correct? Yeah. 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 And how, like, how was that? Was it playing on the radio? Like, could we, you know, I've heard some of the songs um, and they are really good. You know, you made videos for them, whatever. So what what was the response from people listening to it? I think, I mean, this was back in 2017 when I released the first track, Break Free, and that track ended up getting radio play, probably Mm -hmm. more because people were just intrigued and disc jockeys were like, oh, how do we feel about this whole AI music thing? But this was you know, several years before the kind of AI boom that we've seen um, reached public consciousness. So I think people didn't really know how to think about it and also what it meant to collaborate with AI. It takes a little bit of of, um, sort of talking through through it for people to understand what that actually means. Um, So, you know, the the response was very interesting. I think I think for the most part, people were curious and engaged, but also very concerned about what this meant for the future of music. And that was part of the reason that I dove into the project. I love experimenting with new technologies in part because it is a space where there are no rules. You're kind of figuring out you're figuring everything out as you go. There's no handbook on how to do it. And um, and the end result is that it 
poses a lot of interesting questions that we need to be asking ourselves as creative yeah. in a society. So I, right. I'm openly participating in, in those exact same questions. Right, right. So, you know, it's so funny. I think we think of AI as something that has to do with sci-fi movies or robots or things that are like not attainable. There are things that aren't real. And, but it's become, you know, apparent that AI is much more relatable. It's much more mundane. And, you know, it is happening. It is at the forefront and it is here. And we have to figure out if it's good or bad. And somewhere in there, you got more involved in it, right? As, as more of a filmmaker and you, um, and you created a documentary called I am human, which by the way is fascinating. And I'll tell you a funny story before you get into what it is. Um, my producer, Allison is part of like a writing group. And just two days ago, this is no joke. One of the, you know, writers came in and was pitching her, her, screenplay about something that was so, sort of similar where somebody had something implanted in their brain and they were a different person and blah, blah, blah. And people in the group started being like, mm, I don't know, that's kind of unrealistic. I don't think anyone's going to get it. And Allison's like, wait, 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 we have someone coming on our show. It's real. This is really happening. And everyone was like, see, you know, the people that were pitching it were like, see, it's not so far fetched, but like to the lay person that's not in the world, um, that you now have, be, you know, ha have been working in and that you've seen, we don't really get where this is going and how far this has already come. And so I really want to talk about it. So tell us about your documentary, how you got into it. And, you know, let's, we're going to talk about like what is on the forefront for AI. Yes. That, first of all, that's amazing. And that's exactly why I made the documentary because anytime I would talk to people at large about neurotech, they would just be like, there's no way that that's actually real. Right. Or they would think it's many, many years down the road. And even now in 2024, uh, <laughs> almost in 2023, uh, you know, I think a lot of people still assume that these things are, are five, 10, 15 years out. You know, Elon Musk started Neuralink and that's gotten a lot of attention um, by way of his megaphone. But I think, um, you know, they're still in earlier trials. So the general public doesn't realize that there are actual humans um, that have been implanted with these devices for the past 20 years. Right. Really. Right. So the film, the film followed three patients, one uh, who was blind, one with paralysis and um, oh, my gosh, and one with Parkinson's. Um, we actually followed five, but three ended up making the cut and they're journeys getting these implantable devices brain computer brain computer interfaces is the is the formal name that, it, that the device is referred to as and essentially these devices use artificial intelligence to decode neural activity and then with that neural activity you can perform all kinds of different functions you can connect a brain to a computer um you can then use you know the bci to uh mobilize like a robotic arm or to restore function in someone who's lost movement to restore sensation. Uh, it's, they're remarkable. They're absolutely remarkable devices. So it's really interesting though, because I think most people, and I think you said this in the documentary or someone said it, that the brain is people's sense of self. And, you know, the question is kind of, you know, how, how is this allowed? What, where is the beginning and the end? And how dangerous is it if somebody else is controlling these things? What did you learn while making this documentary? Ooh, I mean, these are big questions. And I think, you know, for each one of them, there's a larger nuanced answer. I suppose, you know, in the for the time being, in order to get access to these devices, you have to have a very serious, severe neurological disorder. Um, you know, you're part of a clinical trial. There's all kinds of regulation around that. These are not readily available commercial devices. If you are a patient, you can't just go to your doctor right now and say, I want a BCI. Um, you actually have to sign up for a trial. And so at the moment, we're talking about several dozen people who've had these. This is not thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, although actually Parkinson's patients, there's there are a lot of Parkinson's patients that have them, but it's a slightly different device. Um, so in terms of the, the kind of ethical progression of things, I mean, I think, you know, I think what's very likely to happen, like so many things that start out as medical treatments and then become commercialized and then people start looking at, well, what, what can this do for me? What kind of other benefit can I get from this? 
Mm-hmm. And we see this all over the place from, you know, plastic surgery, which initially started in the, what, 19, I think, 40s or 50s as a response to um, soldiers who were going off to war and coming back maimed. And now it's completely been accepted by modern society as something that people do for their benefit. And I think it's likely that we'll see some kind of version of this with BCIs where um, able-bodied people might say, you know, this could give me a leg up. I might have a better memory or I might have um, a faster cognition. And that's quite possible that that will end up happening. Um, that's, it's, it's sort of what we've seen time and again in, in society. Yeah. And, and those are big questions that we should be like talking about now and, and figuring out how we want to deal with it. Right. Of course. But for people that haven't, um, that don't really know what we're talking about yet, when you talk about these things that have Im- been implanted into the brain, um, can you share what that actually is doing? Like for the person you followed that was blind, right? You said there was somebody that was blind. Um, explain what that implant was doing for them. Sure. Well, I'll actually use the example of the of the patient with paralysis first because it's a little more simple. Um, okay. And and, though, and patients with paralysis tend to see the most benefit um, it, 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 in this current moment. So what's happening is we're implanting a microelectrode array, which is like this tiny spiky looking, very, very tiny spiky looking chip. And it, it goes into the motor cortex of the brain and it decodes motor intention. So someone who once had the ability to move and has lost that ability because of an accident, something like that, they imagine themselves moving their arm, their hand, whatever part of their body. And the algorithms are able to decode that intention and then send that intention into a digital device so that you can control, let's say a mouse or you know, a cursor on a screen, um, a video game. Now you can do, type emails and do Photoshop, right? And it's all just connecting the thought of, I wanna move you know, these fingers into the device. Now you can also take that digital information, essentially you're converting brain activity or thoughts into a digital code. You can now take that digital code. You can also um, essentially send it back into the brain or body. So some patients who have paralysis in some of these trials have electrodes implanted in their arm and hand that connect to the computer. So the computer can send the digital code back to their arm and hand muscles, allowing them to actually move. And it's in real time. I mean, it's it looks <laughs> like... Uh, it, it, it looks like they're actually moving their arm and hand seamlessly. Wow. Uh, it's, and it's, are they, and are they getting the sensation that they're moving it or it's just like they're imagining it? Um, they are imagining that they are moving it. And so because they're paralyzed, they're not getting the sensation of moving. They can obviously okay. visually see it, but if you have, um, so some electrodes can be implanted to provide a sensation tactile response. Okay. It's not going to feel the same as when you were pre paralysis, but it will give you some kind of feedback so that, you know, for instance, if you're picking up a, um, you know, a can or something, you know, how much pressure to apply based on the tactile feedback. Right. And I'm curious. So it's, it's for people that have, you know, obviously previously been able to move their legs and arms and have these thoughts because if somebody's born without a limb for whatever reason, they wouldn't know what that feels like, right? So is it it has to come from the memory and from the memory of moving? That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. So that's why it works so well in the motor part of the brain. The sensory cortex part of the brain is the one that's responsible for providing the feedback right. um, back to the brain. So you would have had to have had some kind of ability to have sensory um, information before. Um, and the patients with Parkinson's, it's primarily a motor related disease, you know, with the tremors and the shaking. So that's why those devices tend to work well for Parkinson's patients as well. Meaning it helps them control the movements. Yeah. It'll just turn it right off. They turn right. on the device and done. No more, no more um, shakes. Right. And what about for people that are blind or deaf? Yeah, so we're the company that I work for is actually working on a an implant for deaf patients um, currently because a lot of a lot of patients with deafness actually don't um, don't qualify for a cochlear implant because of the the destruction of the ear canal. Uh-huh. Um, 
like more than 50%. So this would be really helpful for them to circumvent that and go straight to the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, the In terms of the, the patients with blindness, that's a smaller set of patients. Um, there are a couple of companies working on that and it's essentially a sensor that goes in the retina and is sensing light and able to supply the brain with pixels. So you're you're basically seeing an image from inside the brain. I mean, it's really hard to even grok, but (laughs) but they're getting these very um, kind of fuzzy images, but at least it's enough to allow them to be able to move about the world, know if a car is coming, if they're trying to cross the street. Um, And that resolution is going to get better and better just as our internet resolution has gotten better over time. Of course. And obviously they're using subjects that uh, could see in the past. So they know what they're looking at. Has this been, is this something that can be used on people who were born blind and don't even know what vision is? Uh, That's a great question. I'm sure they could, because you could just, then they could be trained to understand what it is that they're seeing and how that maps to sensation. Um, But I think most of the patients who've had it done are patients who previously had sight in part because, um, you know, that's why they want to have their function restored. Right. And also they can give feedback on the difference, you know, what they're seeing. Yeah. So what are some other things that eventually you think this will be used for? I I heard you talk about the fact that some people have been implanted, um, you know, to help with opioid use or, you know, can this help with, with Alzheimer's one one day? They're studying depression, you know, treatment resistant depression. Um, They're studying OCD are studying uh, addiction to alcohol and opioids. I mean, a lot of these issues, you could say they're biochemical. You can also say they're electrical. Um, You can kind of attack them from different ways. But, um, you know, in some cases, you might look at a patient and say, well, by giving them all of these drugs, we're sort of carpet bombing the brain and causing all of these awful side effects. If we target just the neurons at an electrical level and get the same outcome, but without all of the pharmacological side effects. And that's a good thing. But so we're still in the early stages. I have no idea as a non-scientist, um, just BCI enthusiast and, and science communicator, um, you know, kind of what the outcomes will be of these studies. But I, I, you know, my, I, I think that we'll see a lot of really fascinating things in the next 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it, but you know, this is kind of what they make these scary movies about, right? So we, can see ourselves in the future getting implanted with stuff in our brain just to help with something as simple, you know, not being paralyzed. And when I say simple, I shouldn't say it like that, but you know, as an opioid addiction. So I, back to my other question before, like, when do we think that this becomes a problem that all of a sudden a hacker could get in and change people's minds and where it can affect things like an election, it can affect things like overturning things or, you know, when does it get dangerous? Yeah, I mean, we already have a have a huge problem being able to decipher reality. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is, I'm so scared about what's to come this year with AI. And I, you know, I, I work with these tools every single day and I get so excited by them and they give me so much wonder and awe and they will absolutely be used for nefarious evil purposes. And it's really, really frightening. So yeah. I, I can see why anyone would be terrified about the idea of implanting something in your brain that could potentially be hacked. So at the moment, you know, these are closed loop systems um, at universities and, and these, the, the technology requires you to actually be inside a lab and a patient has to actually be thinking about moving, moving a part of their body to even decode the neural activity. So let's mm-hmm. say a patient just has a thought about what they're going to eat for dinner that night. Like there's, there's no access to that thought. There's no ability to decode that thought. There's no ability to implant something in the brain outside of this sort of motor part of the body. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not some potential as these devices become more sophisticated and maybe are implanted in other parts of the brain where these possibilities aren't real. But right now, the the limitations of the science just posit that it's not actually possible to do the kinds of things that we imagine in sci-fi films. Right. Um, and also thoughts are a lot of our, we, we don't really even understand how our thoughts are created. Like, there's so many different neural networks in the brain that are talking and communicating to each other uh, mm-hmm. that 
things like motor and sensory are, we're sort of lucky that those are um, in, taking place in highly specific areas of the brain that can be targeted. Whereas like our general critical thinking and all of that, it's, it's much tougher to determine how that'll be affected by these technologies. I mean, are you right. scared? What do you think about it? Well, you know, I think it's really interesting. I I've been to a conference on it and it was about the negative and the positive. It was hosted by the guys who did the social dilemma. Mm. And one of the guys was talking about how dangerous it is. And he was asking for donations and somebody that we were with actually donated a million dollars that day to help him and his group, you know, combat what's going to happen with AI and to really get the message out that how dangerous it is. And he was showing examples of how dangerous it could be, which gets me to, to something, you know, Netflix just put out a reality show. I don't know if you're familiar with this and I'm going to blank on the name because it was a European reality show. And it was like five couples that were split up and went into two different houses. And, um, they were, it was to see whether or not they would cheat. And then they were presented with photos and videos of their significant other cheating. And they were devastated watching this and you're devastated. You're like, Oh my God, this is terrible. And then they're posed with the question, is this your significant other or is this AI? And they had created, some of it was fake, and, but the, you know, the images that were created looked exactly like them and the movements and everything. So it went on and on for two weeks or whatever. And you had to see these devastating videos and people were sobbing, people are angry. And then they get put together at the end and they have to decide if they really, you know, if their significant other cheated or they didn't, and if they believed, you know, the, the trust level, every one of the couples broke up because they didn't believe it. And whether or not, you know, the host said, okay, well, it was just AI. It was completely fake. They said the other person would get mad. Well, you didn't trust me. And, you know, and no one trusted each other. And the use of AI was so good. You know, I remember hearing some of the the cast members saying, well, that's the way he speaks. That's the way he holds me. That's the way he would kiss me, you know? So I know it's him and it wasn't, you know? So I found that terrifying, yes, but the, yes. but the other thing that was presented to us that was really good in this conference was the use of communicating with animals. I'm a huge animal lover. And these guys were talking about the fact that they're 12 months away from being able to decode um, humpback whale um, conversations with each other. And that, and then that we're probably nine years away. I could be getting the, the years wrong, but somewhere in a decade of speaking to dogs. And to me, that's amazing. I have three dogs. <laughs> I want to speak to my dog. You know, I want to be able to type on the computer, like don't run out the door. Cause you could get hit by a car, <laughs> you know, like, do you like this food I'm serving you, you know, whatever. So, um, I want to be able to have that in my life, but the other stuff is really scary. And the other stuff is scary on so many levels because somebody can talk to you and you think you're talking to someone and it's not them. And it could, you know, your, your identity can be hacked, your accounts can be hacked, whatever it is. So that's my thought on the whole thing. It could be great and it can be scary. Oh, and the last thing, my daughter's 11 and she's in sixth grade and she's in a technology class. And one of their first assignments was to sign up for chat GPT and do an assignment using chat GPT. And you know, I remember when that was kind of introduced into our heads, we started to see news article, you know, news articles about it a year ago and how scary that is for college students, because what are they learning if they could just, you know, have a computer do it all for you. But then I found it odd that they're teaching our 11 year olds how to use it and be prepared to use it in the future. So, you know, I don't really know what to think. I'm actually, you know, I, I take a slightly different uh, tack on the education side. I was actually going to applaud your child's school only because not that your concerns aren't founded, well-founded, but most education systems, particularly a lot of public education systems, um, you know, are going to lose the battle behind private education systems if they don't adopt the technology and teach students how to use it, how to use it safely, how to use it properly, how to actually, you know, use it as like a, a, a way to elevate your work. Um, and if you want, you know, I don't know, I, I think that there's pluses and minuses to it, but if you want to prepare students for the future, it certainly is a future where I don't think, you know, I think chat GPT is here to stay in any 
amalgamations of that is here to stay. And I have just a lot of concerns about um, the, the widening gap between economically disadvantaged kids and those who are more advantaged being taught different things in their schools. Well, I definitely think you're right in that. And by the way, chat GPT, I found it's, it's phenomenal. It's so much better than Google, right? It comes up with all sorts of questions or thoughts or things that you can't gain in one sitting because you actually have to, it gives you the research on Google, but you have to go into it and read it in chat GPT. You can ask a question and it does all the research for you and contains it in one area. It's up to you to know how to fact check and, you know, understand a bigger picture and a broader picture, but it does condense everything. And it gives you so much information that you may have missed if you aren't a good researcher. Um, but I remember the days of being in high school and you, there were so many elements of writing a paper. You had to research it. You had to know how to write English properly. Yes. You had to know how to put it all together. You don't necessarily have to know all those skills now. And I guess you don't really need to use them. You, you don't need to learn it if, if it's going to be done for us anyway and helpful as long as the information is there. And you're right. I mean, there are a lot of um, kids or you know uh, schools that are not giving enough information and it's so much better to be given the opportunity to have a leg up in it so i mean i do find it the whole thing is fascinating but um you know are you we're, li we're living in a large social experiment <laughs> yeah yeah for sure but like are you concerned that like what these guys from the social dilemma said they took it to a new level. Like that whole um, documentary was more about the addiction to social media and the algorithms and how they're kind of the big brother of following you. And that's a whole, you know, that's a whole conversation on one side, but then to take it to another level where it could take over what we're doing, take over jobs, take over um, people's brains, so to speak, like we were talking about, but in a way of like, oh, you know, ruling things and having a mind of its own so people are no longer in charge like that was where the conversation was going for them do you see that as a fear i mean i i saw the talk that the guys from center for humane studies did on on youtube i thought it was brilliant and uh, i definitely think that there's a whole group of silicon valley tech people who are not who are not being cautious enough about how they develop these tools and they're sort of developing them in a black box there's I mean, I can't tell you how many AI engineers I've spoken to who, are, who wake up incredibly excited and also terrified because they don't really understand why the, you know, how, how these AI tools are, are thinking and learning. And so imagine developing something without really understanding how it's doing what it's doing. You, it's very hard to see the future. It's very hard to see how this could be manipulated. Um, and they're trying to do their best at putting all the safeguards in place. But I, I, I share a lot of those sort of larger existential concerns. Mm -hmm. I think um, for the average person, the biggest, for, for just, you know, the, for, for the average person, I would say the biggest concern in the next three years is will AI take my job? Yeah. Um, yeah. And quite frankly, the only path I see um, around that, at least for now, is encouraging people to educate themselves on how to use these tools. Mm. Um, because there's already a huge job market opening up for anyone who has AI skill sets, right? Um, from prompting to engineering, just understanding how any department at any company might integrate with these tools to elevate the department. Um, right. And so there's no doubt about it. It's going to change every aspect of our life and business as we know it. Um, the existential questions, which are super important, I don't think we'll, we'll I, I don't know how we'll even, I don't know how we'll, uh, I suppose, assess how, how real they are for at least another few years. Yeah. That's just my, my very narrow take. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you see a world where airplanes will fly themselves and, you know, it, yes. it would be that you do. Yes. And I do see a world where in the future we will, I think we will look back on the days where we were driving our own cars and think, oh my gosh, that was so barbaric. Like we had no idea when someone was drinking and driving or if they hadn't yeah. slept all night. And if you look at just human auto accidents, it's, it's, 
it's human error. And these, these machines, as scary as it might sound, if they're much better at doing something safer, we're going right. to end up choosing, I think we'll end up choosing those as preferences. Yeah. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I then wonder if that goes a step further where then, you know, you're in an airplane, these airplanes are flying by themselves, but then there's no, you know, they have a mind of their own. And if something gets corrupt in it, that can also shut down everything as well and be very dangerous. Um, but totally. on that, hopefully they can solve for that. Cause that is yes, right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but you know, I have a friend who's a investor in a company called Archer. Are you familiar with Archer? Um, mm -hmm. A very interesting company that he believes is going to be like the Uber for um, airplanes, you know, and where um, they already have made some and are testing them. And I think FedEx uses them now to take parts and body parts back and forth for transplant stuff. But it's like, you know, a small six person, eight person um, airplane that's not flown by a human and goes up and down very quickly. And he was talking about having it from New York to the Hamptons. And it's like an 18 minute flight. And you can kind of type in your phone like, oh, you know, I want to get an archer and in a world where it almost would be like the Jetsons, you know, I love like, that. I want that now. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's, it's created, it's a publicly traded company and the, the oh. stuff that they show is so phenomenal, but also, you know, you're kind of like, that isn't going to happen. And he's like, no, Rachel, it is going to happen. We're just, so we don't get it. Just like you're talking about these things, like with things being implanted in your brain, we just don't imagine that it can happen. So what are some things like us as layperson, we probably don't even realize that this is really going to happen in the next 10 years, but I know I've heard you talk about some things and said to people in a room that are aware of stuff, what do you see in 2030 that we're not aware of that can actually happen or 2035? 2030 or 2035. Okay. So we're talking about, uh, six to 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, oh man. Okay. I'll give you something fun. Okay. I think will happen like a, a positive thing. We are getting so much better at being able to track information about our bodies. The cost of diagnostics is getting much cheaper. We're understanding more and more about how the human brain works through not just implantable devices, but non-invasive devices. Um, and I think we're going to have this really, uh, I do think there'll be a whole new job economy that opens up for like a kind of, what would I call it? It's like a mix of a doctor and an experience engineer. Mm -hmm. um, so every thing that we interface with our visuals, music, um, conversations that we're having with friends, like we'll be able to essentially understand how that's impacting us physiologically and emotionally and mentally. Right. Um, that's really, it's, it's sort of fascinating what we choose to do with that information, but I do think people will get really dialed in on the parts of their life that are causing anxiety, that are causing depression, um, and my hope is that we'll we'll put a lot more resources into understanding like the causes of mental illness, not just right. not just treating them, but really addressing like what is it about our current human society that's causing all of these issues like cancer, et cetera, and um, and kind of developing tools and and solutions for that. So, right. Um, so I saw on your Instagram recently that you said you're running fun AI experiments, building GPT for women with breast cancer. Can you talk about that and talk about your own experience with that as well? Yeah. So in 2019, actually, right when I completed the film, I am human, I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer and went into a full year of pretty aggressive treatment for that, um, chemo, radiation, surgery, the, the whole nine yards and then some. And um, it, what was really fascinating to me was at the time that I was diagnosed, I had five friends of friends, um, all under the age of 35, also diagnosed. And so we started a little chat group and, you know, each of us had a different type of breast cancer. There's many different types and there's different treatments. And there's so many questions that you have that you cannot find on Google. You know, you're, you're better off going to Reddit threads than you are uh, the first, I don't know, 10 pages of search results on Google. And it was this group of girlfriends that we really helped each other through treatment um, by way of our intense research minds. Um, and I wanted to be able to take 
sort of those conversations and the things that you learn as a patient and, and inject them into a knowledge base that can be accessed by other patients in the future. So I'm, I've been working on the Cancer 101 GPT, which is a GPT designed by, uh, by cancer survivors and addresses all the questions that you, you really need answered during treatment, um, particularly as a young woman, like, do I want a cold cap to save my hair? What are the pros and cons of that? What are some of the unwanted or surprising side effects? Uh, you know, things like that, that, that you really can't find online. So, um, so that's what I've been working on in my, in my spare time. What I found really interesting is that you had the wherewithal to freeze your eggs early on um, and do some things that may have been really life-saving for you early on. Can you talk about that? And, and, and what made you do that? So I froze my eggs, um, actually several years before I was diagnosed, I had no idea, obviously, that cancer was in my near future. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was just, I think, uh, a desire at the age of, I think it was 30 when I froze them. So I, I was aware that there was this biological clock and that, that children were not in my near-term future, but that I wanted to be able to preserve that, that ability and that that choice. And I mean, thank goodness I did it because the, when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed estrogen positive breast cancer, um, and highly aggressive. It's HER2 positive. So very fast growing. And, uh, I don't think my doctors would have been super keen on me taking the time to do a bunch of estrogen, <laughs> estrogen based therapies in order to freeze them, uh, again, once I had these tumors in my lymph nodes. So I was really, really lucky that I had frozen my eggs a few years early. There were some other things I had done, like freezing my stem cells um, and sequencing my entire DNA line. Um, and all of those things actually were really advantageous for treatment because, and as we, as doctors and scientists learn more about breast cancer, they are making treatments more personalized. Mm -hmm. um, 10 years ago, it was kind of like everyone got the same treatment. Uh, and so a lot of these things that I was doing were really, was really helpful in getting me a in treatment faster and be yeah. like, uh, more confident that the treatments that I was being given for the particular cock chemo cocktail, uh, would actually work against my tumor type. Do you think that AI is going to have, you know, a, a big role in, um, you know, the lifespan of people being able to detect cancer or any other um, diseases in the future, you know, I don't know. Are you familiar with them? Um, I think it's called Prenuvo. Yes. Uh, yeah. Have and then scan. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's true? I mean, a lot of people give it criticism, like it's not a real thing, but it seems to have saved a lot of people's lives so far. I, I don't understand the criticism of it's not a real thing because it's, yeah. it's actually a real thing. You're going in, you're getting a scan and they're telling you whether or not you have visual tumor cells in your body. Right. Now you have tiny, tiny clusters of tumor cells. It might not get picked up on an MRI, but that doesn't defeat the purpose of, of knowing whether you have palpable tumors. I think a lot of the scientific community, um, there are concerns about these preventative scans for two big reasons, at least as I have interpreted it. Um, one is that these are expensive scans. Most people can't afford them. And so what are we sort of saying as a society that we allow only the wealthy to be able to essentially prevent um, these cancers or catch them really early when insurance companies are not actually providing this to everyone? The second the second piece, which is actually just fascinating, and I... I um, I would love to dive in deeper to understanding this, but there are a lot of studies that show that by increasing preventative scans, you're not actually increasing lifespan. So you're increasing preventative scans in an area, you might be catching cancers earlier, which does help with um with mortality rate, but they're but they're at looking at the overall population, it's the average of 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 the average age of death is the same, whether there's preventative scans or not. It's a very strange, like statistical sort of thing that a lot of these doctors and scientists are aware of. So they're saying, well, then why should we be doing these preventative scans that just cause anxiety and stress mm -hmm. if it's not making these massive population changes? I don't totally understand how this works, but mm -hmm. um, it's possible. It's possible that we all get 
you know, we all, we know that we all have cancer cells in our bodies. It's possible that we all at different times in our life develop small tumors mm-hmm. and that maybe the body naturally fights it off. Right. And so what happens if you go and you get a preventative scan and now all of a sudden you're doing chemo and radiation and all these things, which we know are also not great. Yeah. It's just an interesting. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see where it goes, where it is five, 10, 15 years from now, Mm -hmm. um, what it does for people's health. Where do you see, I mean, I know you've been around all, all of this conversation about you know, immortality and, you know, reducing people's, you know, aging process. What are your thoughts on that and what you've seen and and been around the research? Well, I would say just as someone who, I, I mean, I always thought I was a very healthy person and to go into a year of cancer treatment, um, you know, the, the being sick, uh, for an extended period of time certainly makes you appreciate being healthy in a way that I, I I had never truly appreciated. And so for me, the idea of living a healthier life for as long as possible is incredibly important. And I would try to do as much as I could to increase the odds that, you know, my last 10 years on this earth are not spent in a nursing home hooked up to IVs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so whatever I can do to, to, to increase those odds, I, I am so into doing, and it's why I love all of the biotech consumer health stuff. In terms of the whole living forever thing, I mean, I think it's a really scary proposition to society that, uh, that let's see if I can articulate this correctly. We need, I mean, I think, first of all, I just think life and death is a natural cycle, um, natural cycle of cleansing of the earth. And I think we need, we need death. Um, in part to ensure that, um, you know, that ideas and belief systems and all of these things are reset. Uh, you know, we see what happens when people are in power for too long or when people are, uh, you know, become maniacal about, about certain things in their life. And, and, I'm not doing a good job of explaining this. No, you're doing, no, I've, you're doing I've literally really never good. articulated this in, in public. I just, I think it's a really dangerous idea. This idea that, and particularly if it's the only the wealthiest people, um, you know, who are somehow living way beyond everyone else, mm-hmm. um, we're going to end up in a really scary society. Very do, you, do you see a world where, you know, there were, long time ago, people were only living until their thirties. Now we're living into the seventies, eighties, some people into their hundreds. Do you see a world where somewhat naturally, like we still are, that people are living to 120, 140, 150. Do you think that's a possibility? I think 120 for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I bet there's kids walking around right now that'll really, the whole population that'll be regularly reaching 120. I think, I think. I don't know about 150. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so well, I want to go back to a brain question for a second, because I am very curious about this. If the brain is so powerful, how come we can't like sit on the couch, close our eyes and imagine we're doing 150,000 setups and, you know, leg raises or whatever to get fit? Like how, why isn't that a, a thing? <laughs> To do what? To just thinking about it to get fit? Yeah, to like, really think about it to make to make your muscles flex that much. Do you know what I mean? Like, are, do you yeah. think that'll ever happen that we are able to, because you're talking about imagining, yes. um, you know, that you can lift your arm and you can do art and you can do all these things for motor skills. Yes. Will there ever be a point where we can imagine we're getting fit and we actually see a ripped stomach? <laughs> I feel like I read a funny study that that was on this very thing that demonstrated that when people actually think about being fit, they get fit faster. Oh my gosh. But do you think that's like manifestation or is that real? (laughs) No, I think, I think it's actually, it was a, it was a well-done study. I don't remember what book I I read it in, but I remember thinking it wasn't just some fluff thing. Um, and my guess is that it's similar to the placebo effect, which we know is a real effect, right? Where people will take a sugar pill and they will have the exact same outcomes as someone who's taking the real medication. So there is something, um, very powerful that we still don't yet understand about our, our brain's ability to give our body instructions. 
and um, do certain things. And I wouldn't be surprised if yeah. some version of what you just postulated becomes possible. Right. Well, I would hope that that becomes possible in my <laughs> lifetime. So, because that would be very helpful in, you know, getting fit as we get older. You're so fit. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you, as you get older, it's harder to get fit. So it'd be great if we're in our 80s and all of a sudden we can, you know, feel like we're looking younger when we can't lift that much. You know, that would be cool. Sure. Um, okay, so how, uh, by the way, how are you doing in your in your fight with your with cancer? Thank you. I um, I just had a scan done. My four year scan was done in December and it came back clear. Wow. So four years remission and uh, five years is the really big is the big year they want you to get to. Um, reoccurrence rates are really high for my type, my particular type of cancer. It's 25% uh, reoccur in the first five years. So I'm almost there <laughs> to the big marker. Yeah. Good. I'm happy to hear that. And fingers are crossed for you. So, all right. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about this, but like, I kind of just want to like get a, a, to end this. What should we as lay people be like looking forward to um, in the future? Some of the things that we may not know of that you're really excited about. Um, it doesn't have to be in the next 10 years, like what I asked you before, but what is something we can expect in the future that that we may not know of? It's so funny when people ask me that question, one of the first examples I, I give is the speaking to your animals. <laughs> so oh, you do. Okay, good. Hard. So you've heard you about this also. Hard. Oh yes, and there there was another uh, AI study done on bats, and they have already decoded bat language, <laughs> which is amazing. Bats I didn't even know they had a language. Okay, they have a whole language. They can tell genders. They can. There's like a very specific, interesting things about bat language. Um, but anyway, I, I do feel like that'll be sort of a fun, uh, kind of a fun little treat for all of us to finally be able to talk to our. <laughs> Yeah, but it is so interesting because people say, you know, with with animals, it's a lot of energy or, you know, this telepathic thought, but they have a a language that can be deciphered, apparently. And I think that would be that's going to be so cool. I hope I am alive for that to happen, because I cannot wait for that. You know, and again, they say that that can also be very dangerous because you can influence what animals think or do. So there's a whole other side to it, but you know, I just want to tell my dogs, I love them. So. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And they, they will probably be excited to hear that from you. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. I, like I said, I am genuinely excited about um, a future where we have more control over our mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also start being able to better see the, the parts of our manifested reality that are causing us physical ailments, mental ailments, um, just connecting that tissue better. Um, and I, I think we're, we're getting there. So I'm, I'm really excited about those two aspects of life from an entertainment perspective. I'm, I'm really excited about augmented reality and being able to like put on something that allows me to interface with the world in new ways. Um, I'm not a screen person. I actually really dislike having my phone and having a screen and, notifications and all of those things. I like just want that off. So I like the idea of being able to put something on, not have a phone and then, you know, immediately take it off when I, when I want to take it off. Um, Meaning like an Oculus or whatever these. Yeah. These like glasses, are. glasses that would superimpose information onto the world in a really, in a really kind of um, seamless and integrated way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I'm terrible at remembering people's names too. So if I go to a party and I have my glasses on and their names pop up and I'm like, Hey, Rachel, it's so good to see you. Oh, that's so cool. I never thought of that. Okay. I see what you mean. You know, I went to a conference, um, about, uh, a couple months ago where they were talking about, you know, um, training with what I'm talking about, like this Oculus camera, um, for people that are going to submarines and to show them what it's like to be in a small area and to, so it's a whole new world of training or simulation for airlines or whatever it is that people can step into, um, you know, this new realm of reality and actually learn a, a, a trait or learn a, a job skill or whatever it is. So it's not just to fun, you know, fun yes. thing for kids to play games and play, you know, do that kind of thing, but it's really, um, moving forward with the whole training aspect, which I think is shocking and phenomenal, you know? Imagine learning to sew for the first time ever with little bubbles popping up that 
that give an arrows showing you where to put the, yeah. the fabric and how to thread the needle. I was just because I was thinking about how how horrible I was at sewing growing up. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually got to play with the Facebook goggles a couple of months ago and they had like a piano demo mm -hmm. it was so much fun and I could see why kids would love it and it really is an incredible education tool so yeah I love that too um okay so what can we expect for from you in the near future more AI experiments I'm doing I try to do regular monthly creative experiments on my Instagram and share those and I'm working on a musical right now using AI. So I'm I'm collaborating with my best friend and uh, ChatGPT, and we are writing a psychedelic musical. Oh my god! <laughs> so I'm very excited for that. Wow, I'm so excited for that. Okay, and where can people find out more information about all the stuff that we were talking about? AI, neurotech, all of that. Mm -hmm. Oh man, just like generally. Yeah. Or like the company you work for, talk about where they can find your documentary, all that stuff. Yes. I mean, I guess you could follow me and then there's links in my bio to all of these different things. Um, I am human. I don't even know where it's available now. I think it's on Amazon and iTunes mm -hmm. and maybe Discovery Plus. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I share about all of these things quite frequently. So that's probably the best place to find links and everything. Yep. And tell our listeners who aren't watching on YouTube um, where they can find you on Instagram. Oh, Taryn Southern on Instagram. Just okay. and, and your website? T-A-R-Y-N Southern.com. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much, Taryn. I really wish you the best, best. I cannot wait to follow up with you and find out all these exciting things you have in your future. So um, let's stay in touch. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstood podcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S -S, understood. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.